What happens when a blind man, a woman of color, and a child of immigrants get together to discuss how diversity, inclusion, and equity affect your business? Hi everybody, welcome to the Choose Inclusion podcast. I'm UB, and I am the Latino white guy of the group. I'm Nina, I am the woman of color in the group. And I'm Mike, I'm uh, the blind guy. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Choose Inclusion podcast. Uh, we are, we're celebrating the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And our third guest in this series is someone we are truly excited to have on the show. Uh, we're all a fan, we're all fans of the documentary on Netflix called Crip Camp. She was one of the featured people, stars of, of that, that documentary. She's also an international disability rights activist. Uh, she co-authored the book Being Human, an unrepentant memoir of a disability rights activist with Kristen Joyner. She was also most recently featured on Drunk History, an episode of Drunk History. She was on the Trevor Noah show. And she, really cool story. So Allie Stroker, who was the first wheelchair writer to win a Tony Award for her performance in Oklahoma, played Judy in the Drunk History episode. So ladies and gentlemen, well, first of all, let me say hi to Nina and Mike, my dear co-hosts. Hello, team. Hello. Hello. Good and morning. Welcome to, good morning. And, and welcome to the show, Judy Human. Hello. Hi, very nice to be with you all. So nice to have you. So nice to have you. Um, Judy's from, you're from Brooklyn. And um, I love Brooklyn. And you, so, so, what's that? I said you're smart. Yeah. I live, <laughs> I live in Washington, D.C. now. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Well, so, so let's start with, let's start with a question on Crip Camp. You know, what, like, how did that all come to be? You know, like, and what was that experience like? making that documentary, you know, all these years later after after you you started the disability civil rights movement, if you will. Yeah, so first I always need to say I didn't start anything by myself. It was the right. collective work of many, many people and actually in many different parts of the United States. And I think, you know, there were a lot of fortunate things that happened that allowed the alignment to um, really uh, result in the Bay Area and San Francisco being able to play a very important role in uh, the 504 regulations, which really, I think, kick-started in a more national, international way, the disability rights movement in the US. Um, Crip Camp was and is an amazing film because, well, first, Jim Lebrecht, who you had on your program, who is himself a disabled person. And for those of you who have seen or will see Crip Camp, you'll see he's the first really cute guy in a wheelchair coming down a ramp. And, um, you know, it was his growth 
um, as he got old, he went to school, he studied um, sound engineering, became really a professional in that area, worked for a lot of really good people, including a woman named Nicole Noonan, who was the co-director with him. So you can see a lot of different parts that were coming together um, over you know, a 50 year period of time. So I, I'm from Brooklyn and really a lot of my development uh, was the result of experiencing discrimination. I had polio in 1949 and um, like thousands, millions of disabled people in the US and around the world then was experiencing discrimination to a large degree based on the fact that there was no acknowledgement of discrimination uh, towards disabled individuals. Laws didn't exist that, for example, required disabled children to receive the same level of education as non-disabled children. So I didn't get to go to school till I was in the middle of the fourth grade. And then my schooling was in separate quote unquote special education classes that were uh, very important for me because it was the first time I got to meet other disabled individuals. And so we spent every day together in an absolutely, what can I say? Education was not the primary theme of what was going on in those classes. We spent much, much less time in classes, we spent a lot of time getting driven from our homes to school and back and uh, going to OT, PT, speech therapy. So at the end of the day, the maximum amount of education you could have gotten a day if you didn't receive any therapies was about three hours. So as compared to five to six hours that kids were getting in regular classes. So you know, being nine years old. And then I started going to camp, not Jeanette. I started with a camp called Oakhurst. Um, there were, there still are, but there were more camps at that time for kids with disabilities because those of us with physical disabilities basically didn't go to the regular camps because they weren't accessible. Um, and so there was this window really from the late fifties uh, moving forward um, in elementary school, then high school, then college, um, where I was, I was integrated in high school and at university. But the formation of being with other disabled people in school and then these summer camps was very important. I think in the film, you very much see the fact that it was an opportunity for us as disabled teenagers to both be teenagers in a way that we couldn't be um, in our communities because of lack of accessibility. And um, also really was enabling many of us to begin to learn how to express ourselves uh, in a way that was evolving to being more powerful. Uh, I think the evolution was very much 
of recognizing that together, we were able to have discussions about the discrimination we were experiencing um, in school, lack of vision of what we were gonna be doing with our futures. People did not talk with us really about, oh, what did you wanna do when you grew up? You know, it was kind of narrow areas that people would think about. And um, we really needed to begin to move away from just seeing the problems as unresolvable and recognizing that these were problems based on discrimination and that there were things we could do about it. And I think it's also very important to you know, remember the backdrop of what was going on, um, not really a backdrop, but what was happening across the United States. Um, and that was the emergence, again, not emergence, but the, I guess, emergence on television of the civil rights movement. And for okay. me, you know, the visualization of what was going on with the civil rights movement, the multiple things that were happening, um, you know, the violence, the power, um, the multiple voices of people who are coming forward, um, expressing, uh, expressing the role that their communities needed to be playing in making revolutionary changes. That was very important for us to really see this. And I think, you know, another important point is that it is atypical for there to be more than one, maybe two disabled people in a family. Um, and the reason why I think that's an important issue is when you are not in a community as you're growing up that understands issues that you're facing, it makes it more imperative to be able to find people who are like you and where you can really begin to create a vision, not only a vision of what you want, where you wanna go, but approaches on how to get there. Well, I thought one of the most powerful parts of the film for me were in the, at the camp, there was a young woman who, she was very hard to understand, yeah. but there was, Yes, Nancy. Thank you. And, but, um, and I can't remember his name, but he, Steve. Steve, yes, he, he'd helped. I mean, he knew, you know, he, he basically was able to sort of translate and, and understood her. And I just thought to, to your point of what you just talked about, right. Um, I think that's, that's a, a perspective that a lot of people don't think about because I imagine there weren't a lot of people who understood her in her own family even, and then to be here at this camp where somebody understood her. So, and, you know. A little of the background there. Stevie, Nancy, I, Neil Jacobson, we all went to that same elementary school. Mm. So we knew each other. Yeah. And uh, it wasn't that, you know, we just met each other at camp. And so I think that was very important because, you know, when we got to camp together, uh, we were friends with Nancy and we knew that she had valuable things to say 
And then I think the camp itself obviously really was intentional in um, recognizing the contributions that every person can make and that people made different contributions and in different ways. And so that particular, um, well, Nancy was in the film a couple of times, uh, right? She was in a, there was a, a discussion that was going on where Nancy was talking and uh, other people were listening. And one of the women there said, you know, I don't know you well, but I want to get to know you better. You're a nice person. Now that person didn't know Nancy before. I don't know where they lived, but they didn't go to our special ed classes. Um, so I think all of that was very, very important. And I want to say, you know, that people who see the film comment on what you're discussing right now a lot, because I think what I hear people very frequently discussing is how people needed to slow down to be able to listen and be respectful. And that that's something that many people are not used to doing. And so it was, I, I mean, I can't speak for you, I can just say what people I heard say, is that it really um, maybe touched a certain point, you know, within themselves about how they operate their lives. And then I think some people have also seen this because one of the things that Nancy is saying is that she never has time by herself. She's always with other people. And she was an only child. Because um, I, I knew her from school, I visited her house. We were friends. Um, so I think, you know, the film is very powerful in many ways. And this particular issue, I think, is kind of a unique facet of the film that you don't see typically in other films because it took the time. I mean, it videoed what was going on in real life. And I think that was very powerful and will have a very sustaining impact, I think, over time. Mike, I know you're chomping at the bit right now. You, you go ahead and jump right in with your question. <laughs> uh, well, I, I, so Judy, I could talk to you for, for days. I'm uh, such a fan. I love the leadership and I appreciate the fact that you're, you immediately say like this, this was not a single person lifting and it. Uh, it is a collective. And um, uh, I got to tell you the, the, the video, like I, I watched the video multiple times and every time it makes me cry and the part that makes me cry um is uh uh the the comment at the end um uh i think i think it is steve who says you know when he had kids and his uh it was the first time that you know his because his child does not think of him as disabled he's just dad and uh when i had kids that was kind of the same feeling so i could um i could relate to that and when i was 12 i went to in ohio i went to a blind camp that was the first time for me to ever go to camp and uh, be around um, other blind children. Like I, I didn't know I was, uh, you know, like, uh, especially being blind, you don't necessarily see uh, the world around you. And, and so it's very isolating. Um, it's not unique to blindness, but uh, so it was, I, I, I completely agree with what you're saying about how important it is to get around um, 
uh, like abled, uh, like minded, uh, uh, individuals. So I, uh, just, um, I'm such a fan of all that, but Nina, I know you, you're, you're really curious on kind of that, uh, confluence of all these different organizations coming together. So I'd love for you to jump in on that one first. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. So I think one of the interesting things working with the disabilities community, Judy, is that there's just so much diversity within the disabilities community, right? Like, not only do you have people of all different types of disabilities, you have people, you know, who are blind, who are deaf and hard of hearing, who, you know, everything, motor skills, neurological differences, everything. And then you manage to figure out how to get all these folks from disparate communities and, and they're all different colors and cultures and backgrounds and everything. Like, what was that like? How did you, how did you do that? How did you cross all those bounds to create a movement? And I know you're saying you're not creating the movement, but <laughs> you're gra- like, you are like that. the perfect grassroots organizer where you do you do all this stuff and you take no credit for it. And I think that's like, the ultimate in grassroots organizing. <laughs> Very funny. When I went to graduate school, I originally applied to Columbia in community organizing. And I'd been accepted, but then eventually went out to Berkeley um, to get my <laughs> master's in public health. But um, I mean, I would say this is still um, something in progress uh, as far as really continuing to diversify our movement, both racially and disability wise. Um, And I think, you know, there's some very meaningful and important discussions that are going on now and activities that are happening to really um, broaden the movement so that it is, uh, it has a more public eye of the breadth of the diversity that we represent. Um, So in the 60s and 70s, you know, some of it really was that in the North, like my classes were racially integrated disabled kids. In the school itself, because, you know, we went to school in the basement, there were three floors above. The three floors drew from the neighborhood and those classes were 99 point something white. And when I went to school there, but I went back and when I was a teacher, I taught in that school. And I was teaching there in 71, 72, 73. And then the school's racial breakdown had completely changed because um, the neighborhoods had, um, there was white flight. And so, but when I went to school and when I went to Camp Oakers and to Camp Jeanette, um, we were racially integrated. And um, we didn't necessarily, we didn't live in the same communities. So as I mentioned earlier, you get picked up at your house and driven to school. If I got picked up at my house and got directly driven to school, it would have been a 10 or 15 minute ride. But we got picked up and then picked up all these other people. So, I could be riding an hour and 15 to an hour, 30 minutes each day, each way. So it could spend two to three hours a day in the, in the bus. What was interesting about that is that's also when we got a lot of time just to be kids together and talk with each other. And um, 
I think really it was um, people that were our friends. And as we, you know, were getting older and started like forming organizations when we went out to Berkeley to be with the Center for Independent Living, um, the organization was consciously working on becoming both a cross-disability organization. So it started out, the, B, the CIL in Berkeley in 72 and 3, as an organization that was working with people uh, with various forms of physical disabilities and people who are blind and low vision. And uh, for the blind and low vision uh, services, many of the people that we were working with were older individuals. And in the area of physical disabilities, um, there were few people who had their disabilities when they were younger. Many of them were like college graduates from Berkeley. Many had spinal cord injuries and other kinds of disabilities like that. So that was again, a natural group. The racial diversity of what was going on at CIL at that point was really people from the community coming in, um, working on ensuring that we were expanding our services. So CIL in Berkeley, where we were, was um, more white community, but in Oakland, which is very close, uh, there was a large black population. And so we had also opened offices in Berkeley. And for those, you know, when you saw the film, Brad Lomax. Um, so Brad was a, had multiple sclerosis and was a member of the Black Panthers, was involved with Berkeley and Open. There were a number of other people involved with, with um, that. It was kind of a something that we felt was critical to do. And because we were also as CIL working with other nonprofit organizations. Um, in the community around financing, city funding, county funding. Uh, it, we were, as organizations, you know, coming together with CIL as a disability group and um, Latino and Asian and um, Black organizations dealing on different subjects and working with the unions and religious communities it was kind of something that naturally was moving forward. Have you ever seen that like replicated again anywhere in any other time in your life? I mean, I think it's going on now. I mean, I really think the Black Disabled Lives um, movement, which is evolving and Latinx disabled organizations. And um, so I think we are definitely seeing this happen in a um a growingly powerful uh movement the uh program that crip camp set up um the impact campaign which is run by um andrea levant um a black disabled woman um who's been doing a great job with their crip camp 2020 where they've been bringing forward amazing voices of disabled individuals with different types of disabilities and racial backgrounds and Alice Wong and 
Aunt Carrie Gray and many, many other people. I think that really um, is the next very um, powerful part of our evolution. And I feel very much that the disability community is really unique um, because of its breadth and its intergenerationalness. And we have so many issues that we're having to deal with. Um, on the face of it, you know, denial of equal rights, uh, job discrimination, poverty, on and on. And, but as we move forward, addressing these issues, I think we really um, have a lot to offer other movements to really look at the struggles that we go through and um, how we come out, I think, stronger as we move forward. And, and you know, the numbers, we're talking about 61 million disabled people in the US. You know, people having disabilities like anxiety, bipolar, depression, lupus, heart disease, back problems, um, you know, environmental illnesses, on and on getting people to be able to see that at the core of this, it needs to be one's dignity and respect for oneself and respect from the community around you. Um, you know, when people, for those of us who had our disabilities when we were young, like I was a year and a half. So the reality is I've been a disabled person my whole life. If you're 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, whatever, and you are acquiring a disability, it's not just that you're acquiring a disability. You're also bringing forward what your views of other disabled people were. And now you're the person who you, you know, you're, you're, you're now a disabled person and the views that you had around other disabled people are things that you still maintain. So if you felt pity and you felt that someone wasn't equally valuable um, and you consciously or unconsciously, you're bringing that forward. And then you're in a society which still, you know, the seeing disabled people in media on a regular basis, um, in advertising, in television, um, in movies, documentaries, uh, just as people, um, or talking, you know, about roles that people are playing, leadership roles, whatever. It's just not there. So it's this profound absence. And yes, we can talk about how it is getting better. And I agree that it is getting better. And Trip Camp is a great example. And, you know, there's a disabled person here and there and here and there that's being put on a committee and more people are acting. And I think that's all great, but we need to, and I think the, the Black Lives Matter uh, movement really has changed a lot of the discussion going on in the United States so that people are thinking more deeply about some of these issues. I think, you know, one of my, you know, one of the issues is disability 
is still not uh, strongly ingrained in other movements. And therefore, you know, it still is disabled people having to be the ones knocking on the door, demanding to be included. But absolutely. Yeah. I I so appreciate that, Judy. And again, this Mike cast, and so uh, being blind my whole life too, I um I, I do recognize like all the the challenges and and the organization that I uh, founded was specifically around the uh, creating more equity for employment opportunities. And so uh, you, you you're you're touching on the you're touching on the concept, the, 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 the conversation where I want to get to uh, with you for a couple of minutes of saying, okay, well, this is where we started. We still, okay, call it 50 years later, um, 30 years for the ADA coming up on 50 years for 504. Um, we've made progress. However, <laughs> um, again, I was the token blind guy in corporate America for a long time. I'd love to get your ideas on uh, what we need to do more of and next and uh, to really start creating equity, not just in employment, but equity in general. I'd love to get your, uh, your crystal ball on what's, what's to come. What do you think? Oh, Mike, she turned it back on you. <laughs> I, well, I answer, but I want to hear your, your thoughts first. I, well, so, yeah, so specifically for me, it's it's very much a, um, you know, we got to walk the talk. We got to go out there and showcase to, uh, you know, organizations and organizational leaders uh, just what kind of talent uh, we have, showcase that uh, reasonable accommodations are truly reasonable, um, that they are just technology solutions, that hiring people with disabilities is uh, adds value to an organization's bottom line and culture. So, um, I, that's the, the line that I love to walk and talk, but, uh, um, yeah, I'd love to hear from a true leader in this space. You're a true leader in this space, but I'm happy to give you my views on it too. So I think of late, and by that, I mean the last 10 to 20 years, I think businesses are waking up. I wouldn't say they're awake, um, but they are waking up to the fact that there are laws out there that they now have to comply with. And I am a complete believer in strong legislation and strong enforcement because I cannot make anybody respect me or believe in me or invest in me. Um, but I can work to ensure that companies are doing the right thing to ensure that they are removing barriers, that they're training their staff, that they're equally looking for disabled individuals as positions are opening up. And I think, you know, one of the points that you were making, you know, that some of us refer to as universal design, that many of the uh, changes that are available in many cases that also were the result of federal dollars being investing being invested in technology like the Kurzweil machine you know decades ago talking machines those were investments from the VA Veterans Administration and Department of Education and uh, you know we look today 
and see how, you know, talking devices, no one necessarily thinks about any of that as having a relationship to people who are blind and low vision and needed technology. So I think, you know, where the combination of things that are happening, um, businesses are recognizing because of litigation, EEOC and state agencies um, that they have obligations and they're setting up and working in organizations like Disability In and National Organization on Disability and many, many other groups around the country. Um, and we are also, in my view, seeing the positive impact of other pieces of legislation, like the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, which has resulted in many more people uh, going to school in regular schools, elementary schools and high schools, and more people moving into universities and graduating from universities, including uh, disabled people and people of color. Um, I was on a call a couple of weeks ago where someone was mentioning that like 59% of college graduates with disabilities are also people of color, which is great. Now, my suspicion is that many of those individuals don't identify as having a disability. And so, you know, no one has to identify as anything they don't want to identify with. But one of the reasons many people are not identifying as having a disability is because of stigma. Um, because people are concerned about what the ramifications will be if they tell an employer that they have X disability that may or may not need an accommodation. But now, 100% yeah, agree. yeah, so I think, um, yeah, I think, you know, when I look at the world of work, I have to honestly say that one of the issues that's of deep concern to me is COVID and the impact that COVID is going to have and is having on the world of work for everyone. And um, I know that, you know, many people are, and legitimately so, recognizing that we can do things virtually that we couldn't do before. Um, but I also think I don't wanna live in a world where everything is virtual. And we need to be ensuring that disabled individuals are receiving the education and the training and retraining that some people may need for the changing world of work and the changing, I was on a call the other day, I live in Washington DC, as I mentioned, there used to be 3000 taxi cabs on the road a day in DC. There are now 300. Um, I have a, um, a friend in New York who does urban planning. And what you're seeing in the urban areas are major changes and how that's gonna work out over the next number of years and whether or not we're ensuring that disabled people are a part of these discussions of the changing you know, world of work. And of course, nobody has been prepared for this. And so we were already engulfed in discussions about the changing world of work in whatever normal was 
you know, February of this year, um, and already concerned about jobs that were disappearing and jobs that other people with some types of disabilities were doing, and now those jobs disappearing and retraining, and not just disabled individuals, but you know, people whose educational levels are not as strong as others. So um, I think there really now is an imperative more in some way than there was previously, although it was always very significant, to really make sure that the stronger disability rights movement is able to be at the table as these discussions are moving forward and um, being invited to the table as opposed to having to demand that we be at the table. I mean, I think, you know, reasonable, reasonable accommodations is still something, and you were, you were discussing it, Mike, you know, most of the reasonable accommodations are truly reasonable. And yet when people oh, are- Oh, yes. Yeah. But, you know, when managers, That's hiring managers, et cetera, have a resentment or feel that you're asking for something that do you really need it? You're asking for something special and blah, blah, blah. I mean, there's a lot of deep things that are going on. Um, yeah. Well, and I, I so appreciate this, Judy. And my, so my background's all technology. And so like our pitch to organizations, quite honestly, is accessible or reasonable accommodations and accessible technology are, are the same coin, uh, different sides. And when we've had success, when we articulate that, you know, hiring people with disabilities many times is just a technology solution, we then say, but what isn't a technology solution nowadays? And so even for folks that have anxiety disorders or that are on the spectrum, there are technologies to help them overcome their triggers. And so we, we, we really try to lead with a technology being the great mitigator for all people with disabilities. Well, for me, yes, technology, but I also need someone to help me go to the bathroom, uh, help me lift things, move things around, um, get my coat on and off. Um, carry things to meetings on and on. If you're deaf, sign language interpreters. Technology is very important, I agree with you. Um, can help solve many, I don't even wanna call them problems, but opens doors to new opportunities. Um, but there definitely are people who, in addition to technology, need other types of supports. And- um, No, and I, I'm not discounting Please hear me. I'm not. I never discount that. What no, I help do is try to shift some of that mindset where folks, you know, they don't understand what a reasonable accommodation is. And so when I help them shift their mindset on, like, oh, it's technology. Yes, it it just helps with that initial conversation because, as you're saying, like hiring managers, they 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 kind of don't know what they don't know. And so a lot of since I come from corporate, a lot of the conversations I like to have with organizations is just being able to talk court you know, a corporate type language with them to help shift that mindset just a little bit. And the issue is, you know, also how that gets driven home. Where is the consistency within the organization? Um, so a manager is approached by a staff person that they need X. Um, then that manager who may be 
supportive of this goes to HR. And HR may or may not have somebody who gets it. So, you know, there's this cycle of things that go on. And I hear, and you do, I mean, you all do too, you know, on a regular basis that it just takes time for people to learn and you need to have the right checks and balances within the organization to make sure that things are being done right, that the victim doesn't again become the disabled person who requested something and then was significantly questioned on whether or not they needed it because that not only has an adverse effect on the individual, but it also has a chilling effect on other people within the organization who see that what's being discussed is not necessarily really being implemented. Yeah, absolutely. So this has been a good discussion. I love this. Oh, we can't. I, I'm so yeah. I'm so honored, Judy. Thank you so much for carving out some time and your very busy schedule. Yeah, thank you, Judy. This was amazing. Thank you very much. So, Nina, yeah. what do you have a bad back? No, I yeah, kind of sitting at my desk all day. I have to move my desk up and down a bit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and back, you know, back issues are a huge. Uh, area of need that can be addressed from a universal perspective. When I worked at the World Bank, they, um, they just got everybody new chairs. And those new chairs were ergonomically designed to really help address issues like you were discussing. And so I think, you know, for the audience, it's really looking at what we're discussing as not something which only impacts a small percentage of people. It impacts a very large percentage of people. As I said earlier, some of who identify as having a disability, others who don't. And you know, one's disability can be um, less significant and more significant, but nonetheless needs to be discussed. So thank you all very much. Oh, Judy, it was such a pleasure. I one quick question I wanted to ask: who Who did you have more fun with, Trevor Noah or the Choose Inclusion podcast? Our audience is dying to know. Trevor Noah, what? <laughs> who, who did you have Who did you have more fun with, Trevor Noah or the Choose Inclusion podcast? Us. I'm just curious. Which is that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, let's see. Both had good qualities. <laughs> oh. Spoken yeah, like a very You're a politician. Answer. You definitely live in DC. <laughs> yeah, very, very well answer. done, Judy. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Judy. Thanks, Judy, and thanks yeah, everybody for listening. Sure. Can you make sure I've got all your names and your emails and phone numbers? Absolutely. Absolutely. We will send it away. Yeah. Thank, thank you, you so much, and thank you, audience. We'll uh, we'll check y'all later. Bye. Bye. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening to the Choose Inclusion podcast. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And you can see closed captioning for this podcast on our YouTube channel. You can find us online on our website, chooseinclusion.com, and contact us on Twitter at chooseinclusion.